Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. Where does the capacity to lead broadening participation efforts begin? Again and again, our leaders pointed to the capacity to listen to difference, to give people the benefit of the doubt, and to be the cousin, a framework that Kelly places on this skill as a result of these interviews. In this episode, Darren, Carolyn, and Corey talk about expanding beyond one's own self and the reality of people who are like me, being with reality as it currently is, understanding it, assessing it, and accepting it, so that change becomes possible on the premise that you can't change what you don't understand. Distinguishing danger from discomfort and being able to respond effectively to both, and listening as a process of building and connecting. We begin with a conversation between Kelly and me about those moments we call micro and macro aggressions. So what is your answer? What do you, how do you stay in the conversation when someone is making you mad and you just would rather walk away? The goal is for you to not know that I've been offended because I'm old enough to know that that's not your intention in this kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. And you have no way of knowing what I'm bringing into the conversation. You have no way of knowing that you just said something that was a trigger for me. So me lashing out at you is pointless, doesn't get us anywhere. The first thing is probably to suppress it, but then also to question it. Where is this coming from for me? What what did he say that's got me so riled up now that I can't even hear what he's saying anymore? And I've tuned him out and I may not be able to answer that in the moment. But then I think it's also just having done this enough to know how to compartmentalize it, stay in the moment, stay there, and see it through till the end. And then do my processing later. So I don't know that it helps him or me, other than it doesn't escalate the conversation into a confrontation or an argument. I'm thinking about the Thomas Kilman conflict modes and what you just described is a really, can be a very good example of avoidance. If I surface the conflict right now, I'm not ready for it. I'm not sure of my own contribution. I need to look at that a little bit, or I can predict that this moment will escalate or this person, because of the way we invited him in, would suddenly feel so caught off guard. And I'm not ready to shepherd him through that moment. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the initial decision to avoid is a positive investment. Although I know from my own experience and from what many of my clients say to me is that we're always at the risk of taking that good contextualized decision and turning it into a habit. And then the things that need to get addressed never do. Yeah. When I was doing my dissertation, you know, I was studying how does college change attitudes towards sexual orientation from entry to college to graduation. And I had survey data that was those two points and actually a point in between. 
but I also wanted interview data. And so I selected students based on their survey responses so that I could get an array of backgrounds. And I very deliberately did not tell them I was a lesbian when I went in then to interview them on these topics. That meant that I was committing at a level I never appreciated when I went into it. I kind of knew it intellectually, but the actual level of committing to honestly and deeply listening to whatever they said, no matter what they knew about or assumed about me, it was very much a maturation experience. Mm -hmm. And when I finished my dissertation or finished the, the full first draft of it, the rewrite that they sent me back to make was what you learned from doing that has to be in the dissertation. That's not just your own private Idaho. That's part of <laughs> part of the experience that most needs to be talked about. If the two things we're learning in order to be a diverse, inclusive community together that actually functions on the premise of equity and care and respect and justice. And it's those two things. It's knowing when not to speak up and when to speak up. And each of those are deeply effective change agents, mm -hmm. but we get them confused with each other all the time. And <laughs> mm -hmm. that's true. Here are Darren's thoughts in response to a similar question. Even when you were describing your childhood and what drew you to think about fieldwork mm -hmm. early on, what I heard was a curiosity mm -hmm. and a desire to improve. I did not hear an iota of resentment or anger or that kind of attack energy that the world shouldn't be this way. Well, you've caught me on a good day. <laughs> so that is certainly there. Um, that resentment is, is certainly there. And I even have sort of some of my own issues about why the world shouldn't be that way. And it's challenging. It's hard. I've experienced some uh, pretty challenging things in life. I couldn't drive until I was 40 years old. And only at 40, when I could drive, did I realize how much more difficult I had than the rest of the world, how much walking and bicycling and public transportation I had done. And yeah, there was a period where I was very, very angry about that. But that anger sort of gave way to gratitude. Well, it's, it's not difficult anymore, or it's less difficult, you know. For the most part, I try to keep that resentment, that anger in check, because I don't know how productive it's going to be at least in a group setting, it can certainly motivate me. That's the fire that can push me onward. But in a group setting, you've got to kind of be careful with firing that sort of passion because anger, resentment lead to hate and hate isn't what we need. That's not what we need. We need a little more understanding. And where did you learn that? How did you develop that particular perspective and skill set in your life? Hmm. I'd say a variation of that came from my martial arts background. I still practice martial arts three, four times a week. Um, I taught martial arts for several years when I was in college in my 20s. 
One of the things you learn in martial arts is to be aware, be conscientious of your surroundings, but don't perceive everything as a potential attack. Because if you're trying to be that hypervigilant, you run out of energy, you burn out. And so you've got to find this sort of balance of heightened awareness that doesn't wear you out. And it's the same with hate. It's the same with anger. It'll burn you out, man. You'll, you'll have a core meltdown if that's all you, you engage in. Some of my favorite martial arts teachers also emphasized that the best fight is the one you never have. Absolutely. doesn't matter whether you win or lose, you come out with bruises. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a last resort. But if it comes to that, be ready. Right. So you got to be ready. But that combined skill set of how do you engage if you have to and mm-hmm. how are you really clear when you don't have to? And in many ways, I can honestly say that some two years after the Ideas Lab, I'm not the same person that I was before that. My eyes have been open to so many things. A big part of that has been the you know interpersonal struggles that have gone on with this group. We have a diverse group in and of itself. So we have nine PIs, men and women, uh, various uh, racial and ethnic groups, sexual orientations, everything. And every one of my co-PIs is as passionate about this as I am. We all come at this with completely differing viewpoints. And the biggest challenge for me as the leader of all this is directing that passion forward in a positive and productive manner without alienating one or more portions of the group. And we still have our struggles from time to time, but these struggles come from a place of people really loving the field, loving the outdoors, and wanting to make the outdoors accessible to a much wider swath of of humanity. I think a hard alpha mentality wouldn't really work in this. It doesn't really work in this environment, in these scenarios, because an alpha mentality espouses my way or the highway. Well, my way is what gets us into diversity issues in the first place. You've got to be open. You've got to be willing to hear all sides. If I could add anything to that, it would be leave judgment at the door. Just do not bring any sort of judgment into it at all. Because once you start judging, you're going to project that and people aren't going to be open. You've got to just leave judgment at the door. Because again, one of the base considerations of DEI issues is everyone has their own experience. Everyone has their own take on things. And that that can be tough. That can be difficult. But it's absolutely essential. In her interview, Carolyn talked about the ways she learns to listen to difference and the process of discerning discomfort from safety. People don't know this about me. I listen to a lot of country music. And I I think that that gives me a fairly interesting view into rural, mainly white America. I also have empathy for people, you know, who are living in the traditional country music song, right? Who live in small town rural America and the way that they see their country changing around them in ways that they don't understand, in a way that they're not prepared for because they're not prepared for things moving so quickly, because that's rural lifestyle is a lot slower, you know? And so I think there's a lot of fear there. I think a lot of what racism and homophobia and sexism is, is fear. 
I think it's fear of the unknown. I think it's fear of making a fool of yourself. I think it's a fear that you don't want things to change. You just want it to be like this, you know, like, like a country song. You know, you want it to be this little thing you should completely understand and you feel super comfortable in, right? And I can recognize that that is a very toxic thing <laughs> in many ways. And it's not okay. And it's incredibly damaging to people. And I can see completely the empathy, you know, um, from the other side as well, you know, empathizing with communities of color in the way the racism affects them. I mean, I was married to a, a woman of color. So seeing how racism, you know, impacted her was, was you know, a huge thing. Uh, and so I think that that's what empathy does. I think it gives you this ability to hold all of these truths at the same time and recognize that while some truths, you know, what, what, what I think the difficulty is, is then, you know, how do you balance comfort versus safety? And that's a place where people get very stuck, right? People say, I don't feel safe. I'm like, you're perfectly safe. You're just not comfortable. And I think that that's where, you know, you have to then temper that empathy with, I can empathize with this person. And at the same time, they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, objectively, they are actually wrong because what their views are actively harmful to other people and are actively damaging and causing violence to other people. And so that ambiguity is a thing for sure. But I think it just comes from that ability to see things from everybody's side. But then you have to center your own moral you know, universe in there as well and say, even though I can see everybody's point of view, you know, th this person's view is not as valid because that's about comfort. It's not about safety. This person's view is about safety. And that is, you know, that is a thing you need to uphold. And so I think, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of ambiguity in there. And there's this moral compass that I think needs to be pointing in that direction of making sure that everybody has safety and food and water and security and healthcare and, and that's what people and, and the ability to, to provide for themselves. Um, and when people don't have that, that is a huge problem and that's something that we need to solve. I feel a huge amount of responsibility on me every single day on balancing where people are at in the organization versus where I would like them to get to. Recognizing that where I want them to get to is probably a 30-year journey and I won't see the end of it. Recognizing that where people of color and people with disabilities and other folks need this organization to get to, and my responsibility to them has to be tempered within me to what's realistic here and now by where the organization is and then fitting that betrayal. I feel, you know, I often feel like I'm betraying one of these communities or the other because I can't get it right for both of them. And that is, that is incredibly hard to sit with. It's something that I try to balance and try to wrestle with every single day and is hard. Finally, Kelly and Corey talk about allies who don't know how to be allies, giving people the benefit of the doubt and what it takes to be the cousin. I remember my first postdoctoral position. The staff member was there. He was really excited. I was there because I was, like, I was, again, I was the only minority in the whole lab I was at. You know, he would always greet me. I was like, he would always tell me, like, buenos dias, you know, when I'd show up. And I was like, I don't even speak Spanish every day. It's like, oh, you have to go that over the top. They had some interns from Puerto Rico. He was really excited. He brought them in. And I remember he introduced me, like, this is our Hispanic postdoc. He said, I don't know, understand if the four of you want to speak Spanish now. And he stepped back. And it was funny because the three of them actually were born in New York and then moved back to Puerto Rico with their parents. They said, yeah, they're kind of going over the top to accommodate us <laughs> in this case. You know, that's when I also realized, you know, that there's some challenges. You know, there's some people out there who want to be allies. They just don't know how to be allies. <laughs> I think it's how I put it. And so, you know, that was a learning experience. 
you know, and that can be a little tough, you know, for students to learn nowadays. You know, I see students and, you know, they retreat, you know, especially underrepresented students who I work with. As soon as they get pushback, you know, I watch them just kind of retreat, especially when they get out in the world, because sometimes they see it as that intentional bias against them. And, you know, and it's not really that. I use that example, you know, that one about being introduced as a Hispanic postdoc. And I tell students that, like, oh, my God, I hope you got it. Like, well, no, I didn't get angry because I realized it wasn't coming from a place of malice. The guy was actually trying to be nice. He just didn't understand how to do it. There's times when that bias is intentional and you have to confront it. And there's times when it's not. And that's when you can open up a constructive, positive dialogue. And, you know, these are kind of things that can be really tough for students to understand early on. That was the same way. You know, I was a bit of a hothead growing up. You know, it was stereotypical, you know, hot-blooded Latin, you get very angry at stuff. But there's times where, you know, you've got to sort of dial that back and kind of really understand when to be sort of, I don't want to say confrontational, but really sort of make your voice heard about something versus the other point where it's, okay, how do you sit down and have a constructive dialogue about it? Because this was kind of something that wasn't intentional. So there's one other trait that I noticed. It's this one of taking ownership and having some responsibility for how you're treated as someone who's not from the dominant group. So you talked about making the effort to share with your students, noticing when your students isolate themselves and how that lends itself to further division on our campuses. So it must mean that you, too, take some ownership and some responsibility in how you're treated. And so this idea that no matter what, people get the benefit of the doubt is a remarkable trait. And I think it's one that is difficult for individuals from marginalized communities. In an everyday situation, you you cannot tell who deserves the benefit of the doubt and and who doesn't because they're just being malicious. So can you talk a little bit more about how you make the distinction or if you make the distinction at all? Does, Does it ever come to a point where you are accepting that someone has malicious intent? Or is it your belief or, or do you really hold strong to the fact that everyone deserves the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, I mean, most people have you know, encountered over the years. It's always a benefit of the doubt. And again, a lot of times it really is a just a misunderstanding. But, you know, I have had a few occasions where someone was very upfront. Like I, that's the one I worked with in the South and they were very upfront at calling me certain names. <laughs> They were very open about their dislike for non-Caucasian people. You know, they referred me as the token, I won't use the word, but it starts with an S and ends in a C. Um, and that's the, you know, the slang for Hispanic and referred me as the lab's token. I'm like, hey, you know, what's wrong with you? It's like, that's not a good thing. This is like 2002. And I was just, you know, I had to say, hey, you know, that's not okay you know, at this point. And, you know, just be upfront with it. Those are very visible situations in those cases. And, you know, my reaction isn't, again, you know, to kind of just blow a gasket, but to go, hey, you know, this is not okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm as equally qualified as anyone here. You know, I'm not here just because I'm a brown kid from you know, the West Coast. You know, I was the only one actually who had the capacity to run this software system that they needed to start using for their research. And that's why I was there. And I go, look, you can find someone else to do this. Feel free to hire them. But until then, I'm who you have. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of where it was at. You know, so again, you know, it is this matter of, you know, recognizing when it is open hostility and then, you know, confronting it in this case. It's interesting, my family growing up, the community I grew up in, it's considered poor form to kind of be that kind of that boastfulness going, hey, I'm qualified to do that because you get kind of shot down to that, not in the literal sense, um, you know, but yet, you know, you get your cousins or whoever are like, oh, you know, yeah, I, I still get it today. I go, oh, Mr. P, did you not fix the computer? You get a lot of that that happens, but, you know, it's not even really that, you know, I had some family members who were actually, uh, they were activists, you know, you know they would go mark the Cedar Chavez, that type of thing. And so, you know, they always made a point that you had to stand up for yourself. 
I wasn't as sort of activist as they were, you know, they still kind of taught me the value of having a voice, giving yourself a voice, and letting people know that, hey, you know, you're not to be discounted just because of how you look and where you come from. I am intrigued by your cousins for a couple of reasons. One, I'm very close to my cousins as well. Also, understanding the importance of extended family for communities of color. So while you're talking, I'm thinking about other communities that are not of Mexican descent. And if they don't have cousins, where could you see them learning those kinds of things that you learned from your cousins about your culture, about how to interact with other Mexican-Americans? One of our faculty who is complaining, oh, they're trying to get all these Hispanic students to apply to graduate school. And they keep telling me their family won't let them, that their mom's not going to let them move away. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a real thing. And he's like, wait, it is? I'm like, yeah, it is. If you're not going to speak to their family, like, well, no. I was like, well, yeah, no, this is like, I got the same thing for my uncles. Like, why was I moving away? This is a real thing. And so, you know, just getting out there and talking to you, like, nothing bad's going to happen. Like, you're, you're going to learn something. This NOAA Center that I run on campus, we had to go to Ocean Springs, Mississippi for a workshop for training. We required by NOAA to go to a lab there. One of the students like had all kinds of visions in their head, you know, oh, going to the deep south. It's like they all the stereotypes of the south were in their head. And like, no, it's like a normal play. They're just, you know, folks who like to, you know, hang out, do stuff. And, you know, I took them into town and, you know, there was a little, uh, I guess it was a jazz club or a blues club. It was anything like that. And they were like, oh, wow, everyone here is really friendly. I was like, yeah, they're really friendly. I get out and talk to people. It's like you learn something. You might even make a friend. Yeah, that's kind of my philosophy. Just get out and do stuff. I've moved around a lot in my life, you know, with postdocs and government jobs. And, you know, the first thing I do is I go find the hub of town, like where everyone hangs out to go get a sense for the town. Because that's where you're going to make friends. You're going to learn how the town is. Like, I just go find, you know, the, the hub of social activity. And it's not always where the tourists hang out. It's like some little off-the-radar place, and that's, that's where people go. That's just kind of my nature, kind of how I was growing up, too, just going to find where people are hanging out, what they're doing. And that's just how I am. And I tell my students, so that's what you need to do as well, to really understand how the community interacts, what their value structure is like. Because ultimately, I think when you do that, you ultimately wind up developing better relations with people. People have a viewpoint or a value structure. It's for a specific reason. It's they don't have that out of malice or you know some evil plan that they're, they're brewing. In the background there, it's because there's some real issue that they're concerned about and trying to get to the heart of that. I see that with my younger students. So they're 20, 21, but I used to compare them to my older relatives where my older relatives already set in their mindset, right? You guys, fishermen aren't all evil. Foresters are not evil, right? They're doing something for a reason. You need to understand the value structure that their viewpoint's coming from. Those are, I think, the two big ones, I think, for engaging with community, that's really being able to peak in a lot of different styles, then also having the willingness, not so much the capacity, but the willingness to really understand other types of value structures and where they're coming from, digging into them, but digging into them in a way that's constructive. What occurs to me as Corey is talking is to be the cousin. Right? And I know that we always say it's not the role or responsibility of black and brown students to educate white students or make their experience rich. But when we're in particular situations or circumstances where it's appropriate, that what Corey is describing is exactly what his cousins did for him in terms of acclimating him into the family and acculturating him into the family and what their traditions are. And it's a different way of looking at the kind of work that we do for those people who come into our space, that we are the cousins. But that's what I walk away with, just a, a different way of thinking about what the nature of that relationship can be. 
and thinking about, you know, just how raw your family can be with you and really tell you who you are and who you are supposed to be. So we end this episode with Corey naming the importance of standing up for oneself as a key component of listening to difference, and Kelly pondering what it takes to be the cousin as we interact across our differences in identity, power, and culture. In the next episode, we'll draw on another familial relationship to describe the skills needed to lead broadening participation. In the next episode, be the auntie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group, LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.